You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We spent our time last week talking about repentance and repentance's connection to the kingdom of God. And what we can concluded as we examine the scriptures is that repentance in its essence is about shifting our attention. Repentance isn't in its essence first is about turning our attention away from those things that keep us from living into who God created us to be. And may we, it may be that we have to turn from sin or it may be that we have to turn from some morally neutral or even good thing, but it's become a distraction to us because we've given it too much attention. So we have to turn from it. It may be, for example, that repenting means that I turn from a job that I'm allowing to consume my time and my energy to the neglect of God's kingdom purposes. It may be that repenting necessitates that I turn my attention even from my family in some respect if they're interfering with my ability to live a life of kingdom priority. Repentance can mean turning from those types of good things as well as turning from some type of Sin, like lying or gossip or sexual immorality or whatever. That's, not t- that's, that's typically actually how we've understood repentance. We've typically thought of repentance only as turning from those types of obvious sins. And, and it can include that. It certainly is a part of repentance and what's, what God's calling us to in repentance. But it's very clear from the Scriptures that even morally neutral things and good things can keep us from actually turning our attention to the King. Take, for example, what Jesus says in Luke 14, 26. This is a a somewhat confusing passage if you lift it out of the context of the Scriptures. But in Luke 14, Jesus was talking about how following him requires giving him our attention. And he said, Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother... uh, I only just realized it was Father's Day. I picked this a long time ago. This is not really an appropriate passage for a Father's Day, but it makes our point nonetheless. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we know that Jesus wasn't telling us here that we need to seek to harm our family or even that we need to neglect to take care of our family. That would be grossly inconsistent with clear instruction in the Scriptures. But what Jesus was saying was that our pursuit of him may very well require us to turn our attention away from our families so that we can turn our attention to him. And you can understand why that would have been the case, particularly in his time and culture, when turning your attention to Jesus meant that you were turning your back on cultural norms and religious norms. Unless you were willing to turn from your family, you weren't ready in many instances to follow Jesus because your family, in many instances, was not on board with accepting Jesus as the Messiah. Your family may well have, very well have been on board with getting rid of Jesus. But in many respects, the same is still true for us. Participating in the kingdom of God may very well require me to turn my attention away from my family, at least to some degree, or to, from some other good thing, to to refuse to give it improper sway over my life and over my decisions so that I can truly turn my attention to the Messiah. And we all know that we are distracted by good things as well as bad things, right? But that can be a form of repentance in the same way that turning from sexual immorality or turning from a life of violence can be a form of repentance. But then beyond just turning away from those things that distract us, we understood last week through our look at the Scriptures that repentance is second, and I think primarily, a turning of our attention toward God. And it's a turning of our attention toward God for a very specific purpose. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, invites us to turn our attention toward God so that we can participate in his kingdom. And if we understand 
what that means in light of passages like Isaiah chapter 9 and Exodus 19 and Revelation chapter 5, which we looked at last week, if we understand what that means, turning our attention to the kingdom, we understand that Jesus is calling us to repentance so that we can, he can form us into a, a holy people who are on, on mission with him, and the mission is to pursue the restoration and wholeness of all creation. See, repentance is so much more than just modifying behavior or a commitment of ourselves to moralism as a goal in and of itself. In some ways, that's how repentance has primarily been understood. And certainly that can be an outworking of repentance. We may very well become moral people when we truly give God our attention. In fact, that would be the hope in many cases. If, if when we've begun to give God our attention, we're entangled in thievery and debauchery and coarse joking and all those types of things, the hope would certainly be that we would absolutely turn from those. But by no means is simply turning from those sinful actions the end goal of repentance. See, repentance is calling us far beyond moralism. Repentance is all about allowing ourselves to be led by the King. Repentance is all about allowing ourselves to be led by the Spirit of God as opposed to allowing ourselves to be led by the flesh. And Paul talks about that in great detail, and in Galatians chapter 5 is just one example. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul addresses the acts of the flesh that he says need to be taken off, and he talks there about things like jealousy and rage, outbursts of anger and drunkenness and promiscuity and so on. And then he concludes that passage related to the acts of the flesh by saying this. He says that the person who is controlled in these ways by, by these types of things has no place in the kingdom of God. They can't participate in what God is doing in the world because they haven't turned their attention to him. But he doesn't stop by addressing the acts of the flesh. He then moves on to identify the ultimate goal of repentance and living by the Spirit, which which is to put on the fruit of the Spirit. And very clearly the idea behind the fruit of the Spirit is that we move into the pursuit of wholeness on on behalf of others. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and so on. They all have something to do with our relationship with other people. See, being led by the Spirit leads me to the same place that repentance leads me, which is beyond simply being a moral person to the pursuit of the well-being of my neighbor. Now, adding to the confusion about what repentance is really all about is the fact that oftentimes those who preach repentance seem primarily motivated by anger and judgment toward those whose behavior in their estimation needs modification. Repentance, it seems, has been primarily used as a weapon against those who are not yet a part of the people of God. One of the things that may come to your mind when you hear the word repent is a red-faced street preacher whose message more than anything else is of God's hatred of sinners. We have that example in our society. But repentance, as we understand it from the message of Jesus, is more akin to an invitation than it is a pronouncement of God's hatred of sinners. It's not a message that Jesus delivered because of his hatred of sinners. In fact, when we look back at the story of Jonah, it's clear that God's message of repentance to the people of Nineveh was motivated not by hatred, but by great concern. In fact, God cared more for the people of Nineveh than Jonah did. Jonah wanted to destroy the people because of their wickedness. He's the one that hated sinners. But God had repentance preached among them because he saw them in their ignorance and he had compassion on them. That's made clear in the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah where God questions an angry Jonah who's gotten upset because he's forgiven the people of Nineveh. And Jonah says, or God says very simply to Jonah, Jonah, should I not care about the great city of Nineveh who has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left? 
See, Jonah was actually mad because he knew that God was compassionate. He knew that God was forgiving. He knew that God was calling the people of Nineveh to repentance because he wanted to bless and restore them. He knew that repentance wasn't an announcement of God's hatred, but rather an announcement of God's love. And he was enraged. Now, certainly there were occasions when Jesus and the prophets preached repentance with a bit of an edge as a a warning to those who had gone astray or as a warning to those who were distracted. We particularly see that in the prophets and their interaction with the people of God in the Old Testament. And we also see that in Jesus and John the Baptist and their interaction with the religious leaders of their day. But despite the prophetic edge that was sometimes a part of it, repentance properly understood is all about turning our attention to the God who made us and loves us and has redeemed us at great cost to himself. It's an invitation flowing not from divine hatred, but from divine mercy and grace to join God in what he is doing in the world. It's an invitation to partner with the King of Kings, to become a part of his royal family. Listen. You don't invite people into your family if you hate them. None of you have ever done that. And God's not doing that either. He's inviting us into his family because he loves us deeply. That's what repentance, that's the motivation behind repentance. That's why in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said, repentance is a necessary part to becoming a part of his kingdom. Repentance is intimately connected to our participation in the royal family and whatever it is that Christ is out to do in the world. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And his point is, these two things, repentance and participation in the kingdom of God, repentance and and participation in the royal family of God, these two things are inseparable. You can't be a part of the kingdom apart from repentance, but you can't repent in the way that Christ is calling you to repent without understanding what the kingdom of God is all about. And if you ponder for a moment the way that our society has become so hyper-distracted that we have trouble even lifting our heads to give our attention to our children or to our spouses or whatever else because of television and iPhones and and everything else. If you ponder that for a moment, you come away recognizing that that Jesus' message of repentance, his call to uh, attention, is as relevant and necessary today as it has ever been. And so I want to just ask you as we get started this morning to soberly and honestly consider, are you distracted? Are you distracted? Or are you giving God your attention? With those things in mind, having talked about what repentance is last week, this morning we're going to talk a little bit about what repentance looks like practically. We're going to kind of, kind of move from the theoretical to the practical, although I think there was some practical stuff last week as well. But as we begin our discussion of what repentance looks like, I was just remind you of Isaiah chapter 9, and we won't talk about it for long because we did talk about it last week. But I do want you to remember that Isaiah chapter 9 is the passage that forms the basis for our discussion of the kingdom of God and repentance. This is the passage, Isaiah chapter 9, that Matthew refers to in Matthew chapter 4 just prior to telling us that Jesus came and announced that people needed to repent in preparation for the kingdom of heaven, or because the kingdom of heaven had come near. And that's important. The context of this passage and how it's used in Matthew chapter 4 is important because it indicates to us that this is how those who were closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry, this is how they understood what the kingdom of God was all about. This is the context into which Jesus puts his invitation as it's recorded in their story in the Gospels. They understood the kingdom within the context of the pursuit of shalom. 
That's what Isaiah 9 is really all about. Verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9, this is what we read. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forevermore, or from now, yeah, from now on and forever. And then he says at the end there, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Again, the key concept here is the idea of shalom. Isaiah reminds us that the Messiah will be known as the prince of shalom. He will be the prince or the ruler of wholeness and restoration. Those things will characterize his rule. That's what the administration of his rule is all about. The one word, if you can't already tell, the one word that I've come to believe sums up the ministry and the reign of Jesus better than any other word is the word shalom, wholeness. Restoration. The concept is all over the place in the scriptures. In fact, in verse 7 of Isaiah 9, Isaiah says that this wholeness, this, this restoration, which is translated as prosperity there in verse 7, but Isaiah says that this wholeness, this restoration, this shalom will never end. The king of kings will be dedicated to the pursuit of restoration for all of eternity. And he says there at the very end, he will ultimately bring it about. The Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Give that some attention this morning. What Isaiah is telling us is that the ultimate end of the kingdom of God, the the climax of the story that encompasses all of human history and all of eternity, is to bring wholeness and restoration into a world that has been horribly broken and fragmented by the reign of sin and death. Shalom is the way that God originally created things to be, yes, but is also the way that God in Christ is recreating things to be. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. And I bring that to your attention, this concept of shalom, as I do in almost every sermon that I preach these days, because I believe with all of my heart that it is only as we understand the true intentions of the kingdom of God that we can fully grasp what repentance is all about. I can only repent in the way that God's calling me to repent when I know what the ultimate intentions of my king are. And so having looked at Jesus' invitation to repent last week, this morning, I want us to turn our attention to the ministry of John the Baptist and how the ministry and the preaching of John the Baptist helps us understand what genuine repentance actually looks like. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist is described as having preached the exact same message that Jesus preached. John prepared the way for the coming of the king by preaching among the Jews that they should repent because the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God had come near. And his message of repentance is recorded actually just prior to Jesus' message of repentance. Jesus preaches repentance in verses 12 through 17 of Matthew chapter 4. John preaches repentance in verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 3. But this morning, rather than actually looking at Matthew's account of John's preaching, we're actually going to turn our attention to Luke's account of John's preaching because, in my opinion, Luke goes further to describe what uh, repentance actually looks like. And that's what I want us to talk about. To be clear, John preached repentance as preparation for the kingdom of heaven. That's clear from Matthew chapter 3, although it's not stated the exact same way in Luke chapter 3. But we're going to look at Luke anyway because John's interaction with the crowd in Luke paints a more specific picture of the end goal of repentance or what God is working toward in calling us to repentance. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, 
God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. I didn't include verse 1, and I wish I would have, but verse 1 is just a mention of all of the rulers of that time. And it's as if Luke, as he's bringing up this concept of repentance and preparation for the kingdom of God, it's as if Luke is setting that against the backdrop in verse 1 of the earthly kings who were around at that time. And he's saying, John was announcing the coming of the kingdom, and this is how it it looks in contrast to the ways of these earthly kings who are mentioned in verse 1. You can look at that later if you want. Verse 3, he went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth. There's a, a visual image there of restoration, the crooked becoming straight, the rough being smooth. Verse 6, and everyone will see the salvation of God. Verse 7, he then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers. And so <laughs> there's an example of preaching repentance with an edge. It doesn't, re- it doesn't mean that it was motivated by hatred, but it certainly had an edge, right? Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these thro- stones. Even now, the axe is ready to strike the roots of, root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And John's point as he's speaking to these, these Jewish people is, look, don't rest in your lineage. Don't rest in your ritual. Don't rest in your moralism. But produce the actual fruit of repentance. Produce the fruit that shows that you've actually turned your attention to the prince of Shalom. Verse 10, what, sh- what then should we do, the crowds were asking. So he calls them to repentance, and they say, what does that look like? What does it look like when I actually turn my attention to the Prince of Shalom? Verses 11 through 14, and I want you to pay attention to this, because this is a little bit surprising. This is not the way we typically think of repentance and what repentance looks like. Verse 11, he then replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, What should we do? He said to them, Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this is an eye-opening passage with regard to the essence of real repentance. What what stands out to me as I consider John's message here are the examples that John gives as a way to describe what repentance really looks like. If you'll notice, all of these examples have something to do with bringing wholeness. The focus is not on simple morality. Although, again, there's a sense in which giving God our attention requires that we turn from the idols of sexual immorality and gossip and drunkenness and all of those things that you typically think about when you think about repentance. But as John's addressing a people who were guided by a very strict moral law, the focus of his description of repentance is on what they need to do to bring about wholeness. The focus is on practical demonstrations of what it means to love our neighbor. He doesn't say to them, You're okay because you're a basically moral people. He says, if you repent, if you pay attention to the king, you'll ultimately start paying more attention to your neighbor. That's the fruit of repentance. That's the end result I'm looking for. 
Notice how as these different groups are asking John what they should do in response to his instruction to repent, John gives them very practical instruction applying to how they pursue the wholeness of their neighbor. To those who have excess, he says very simply, share. To those who have the authority to demand taxes from people, he says, don't abuse your position and take advantage of others. To, to soldiers who have the ability to accuse and bribe because they're, you know, they have government-sanctioned power, he says the same thing. Don't use your power to mistreat your neighbor. And the message is ultimately, if you turn your attention to the king, if you repent in preparation for the kingdom of God, the end result will be that you stop living for yourself. However you're living for yourself, you'll stop that. And you'll start living with other people's well-being in mind. See, in repentance, God's calling us to do so much more than just avoid immoral acts. It's clear that when John spoke of the fruit of repentance, he was talking about a de developing a mindset that pursues the good of its neighbor. It was all about bringing wholeness. It was all about living into the reign of that king who's described in detail using the word shalom in Isaiah chapter 9. And so for the time that we have together this morning, I want us to look at, at several passages scattered out through both the Old and the New Testament that reinforce this concept, that, that reinforce this idea that in repentance, God is actually calling us far beyond moralism and that he's actually calling us into the genuine pursuit of the wholeness of our neighbor. We won't read it in its entirety, but we'll start in Isaiah chapter 1. You can read it later. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, God starts that passage by calling the people to repentance. He says, pay attention. And we know that repentance by now is all about paying attention, right? He says, pay attention. And then he tells them to turn from their evil ways. But he ultimately, in Isaiah chapter 1, calls them to the pursuit of wholeness. Look at verses 16 and 17 and how this passage that begins with repentance actually ends, okay? Wash yourselves, clean yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. And so there is that idea of turning away from those things that have become a distraction, turning away from those things that, are, that, you know, that I'm living into because I'm pursuing my own gratification, right? There is that turning away, but then he doesn't stop there. He says, learn to do what is good. Or he could have said, turn your attention to the Lord and follow in his ways. Learn to do what is good. And then he describes what that looks like when he says, seek justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, Plead the calls, plead the widow's calls. And I, in Isaiah uh, 58, he delivers that same basic message. He, he talks about the, the people's fasting and their participation in ritual. He speaks of how they thought that, they would, that, that God would hear their prayers because of their empty moralism and because they were going through the, the motions of trying to play the part of the people of God and to look what they thought the people of God ought to look like. But then God rebukes them and he calls them to repentance because they were ignoring in the midst of their fast, they were ignoring, as they're trying to get God's attention, ignoring the hungry, the naked, the oppressed, and the homeless. And that passage concludes in verses 6 through 8, sorry, 6 through 10 of Isaiah 58, where God says this. The people are fasting, and he says this. Isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see, see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? And then he says, Then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing and malicious speaking, and 
If you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will be like the noonday. If you remember Isaiah 9-2, as Isaiah is describing the coming king, he says there in verse 2, on those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. And then he brings up that idea that Jesus is the light because Jesus brings shalom. His bringing of, of wholeness brings joy and peace and light. But in Isaiah 58, God's saying essentially the same thing to his people. He's saying, I chose you to be a light to the nations, just like I chose Jesus. But you can only be a light when you move beyond ritual, when you move beyond moralism, into the pursuit of the wholeness of the poor and the broken. When you take seriously my command to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't just be your light if all you're ever going to do is talk about the truth. There's more to the gospel than that. You've got to put it into practice by pursuing shalom. And he says very clearly in verse 10, then when you're pursuing shalom, when you're giving yourself to the poor, then your light will shine in the darkness. As as, uh, Jesus is preaching his sermon on the mount, he's speaking to a Jewish audience who would have been very familiar with the law of Moses. And he, he opens by saying in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And what he's talking about is the the, the scribes and the Pharisees looked at the the law. They looked at righteousness as this obedience to a moral code. They looked at righteousness as this technical legal obedience. That's why they wrote down all of these specific laws, like you can't carry a needle in your pocket on the Sabbath, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. They got very technical and legal about it, right? And Jesus says, if unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's not talking about the distant kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is referring to when he talks about his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying there, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never be a part of what I'm doing. You'll never reign with me. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then as he explains, he employs one particular pattern of speech over and over again that I think as I read it is intended to emphasize the pursuit of shalom over the pursuit of simple morality. And this is the the pattern he employs. He says, you have heard that it was said this, but I tell you this. And every time he's going to pull their attention away from moral code and into the pursuit of wholeness of their neighbor. All right, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. All right, that's the technical definition. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and and tooth for tooth. In other words, You thought my law was all about legal justice, but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks of you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. He's saying, you've read and heard the law as a code of morality, and my intention for it was so much more than that. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Now, as a side note to verse 37, where Jesus talks about greeting your brothers, what was Jesus referring to? How did the Jews greet one another? What did they say? Shalom, right? They, they essentially say to one another as they're encountering each other, may God make you whole. But Jesus says, when you greet your brothers with a pronouncement of wholeness, that's not a big deal. Even the Gentiles, even pagans do that. That doesn't show your connection to me. As an example of the type of thing that Jesus is talking about, consider the Muslim community, although they certainly weren't around when Jesus talked about these words. They didn't come around until about 660 years after Jesus. But you know, Muslims claim no connection to the Prince of Peace, and yet culturally speaking, they consider it a very important act to pronounce a blessing on, of peace on one another when they greet one another. I lived in an, an Islamic context for about a year and a half in Indonesia. One of the first things I was taught when I went to live with a Muslim family is, when you enter this house... You do not enter this house without making a pronouncement of peace. You say, assalamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you. And then whoever hears you in the house says back to you, walaikum salam, and that means peace be upon you. The pronouncement is so important, in fact, in their religion that they've named their religion after it. Islam, that word has as its root the word salam, which means peace. That's why Muslims are frequently discussed as people uh, or a re- Islam, rather, is discussed as a, a religion of peace. It's in the name. And actually, linguistically, those two words, shalom and salam, have a very similar heritage. But Jesus is saying, look, greeting your brother doesn't make you special. Pronouncing wholeness on your brother doesn't set you apart. I'm not calling you to pronounce wholeness just on your brother. I'm calling you to pronounce wholeness and then pursue wholeness in the life of your enemy. And then he, then he closes there in verse 48 by saying, after, after summing all this up, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We, we sang this morning, you're a good, good Father, and part of that song says, you're perfect in all your ways, you're perfect in all your ways, perfect in all your ways. And the idea that Jesus says right here is God is perfect in all of his ways because he is committed not to a moral code, but to the pursuit of wholeness. What Jesus is saying here is you've heard the law all along as a moral code. You've heard the law as this list of rules that you thought I was giving you in order to become basically good people in an external way. You've heard the law as something that you should really only apply or look to apply personally. But I was always calling you, even through the law of Moses, to go far beyond just an empty set of moral rules. What I intended all along by giving you the law of Moses was that it become a guide for you concerning how you pursue wholeness and restoration in the life of your neighbor. You thought that I meant you shouldn't murder, but what I actually meant was pursue the wholeness of your neighbor by getting rid of anger and initiating reconciliation, even with your enemy. Give and give again. When you heard in the law, love your neighbor, you interpreted that as an excuse for hating your your enemy. You interpreted it very technically according to the letter, but what I intended was that you actually Bless your enemy and pray for those who persecute you because that's the way that you show him what I'm like. That's the way that you extend my reign to him. See, according to the rule of shalom, even my enemy is my neighbor. He's saying, see, you've been looking at the law as a moral code, but all along it was a guide for how I wanted to extend my reign among the peoples. And what was true with regard to the law of Moses 
for the scribes and the Pharisees is often true for us with regard to repentance. We've heard it one way as a calling to basic moralism when God was actually calling us another. We've heard it as moralism when God was calling us to the pursuit of shalom. In fact, if you go over to 1 Thessalonians 4, we understand that this consideration of our neighbor is used as a guide for our moral acts, even in the writings of Paul. Paul suggests that concern for our neighbor as one who bears the image of God is really at the heart of all morality. We don't just pursue morality as an end in and of itself, as if that's all that God's calling us to in the gospel, but instead we pursue morality as part of the pursuit of our neighbor's wholeness. I want you to look at verses uh, 3 through 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and this may be surprising to you, the way that Paul speaks of sexual immorality. It's, it's differently than I've thought about it a lot of my life. Verse 3, for this is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so it's very clear, God is calling us to some type of pursuit of sexual purity, right? But he's going to get to the reason in a minute. That you abstain from sexual immorality so that each of you knows how to control his body in sanctification and honor, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. And then he says in verse 6, essentially this is why. This means one must not transgress against and defraud his brother or sister in this manner. He's, he's talking about sexual immorality as a fraudulent act against our neighbor. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but to sanctification. Therefore, the person who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who also gives you his spirit. And I bring that passage to your attention, even though we're running short on time here. I'm sorry. Fred asked me to preach long to make him look better. But I bring that passage to your attention because to me, this passage points out how all-encompassing God's pursuit of wholeness is. Paul says that my pursuit of wholeness even applies to my view of sex. Paul suggests that I ought not seek the benefits of sexual gratification without an absolute commitment to that person's wholeness, without a commitment to that person's entire person, because that is what is best for that person. That's why marriage establishes the parameters of the sexual relationship. It's not because God is a killjoy. It's because God is interested in wholeness. In marriage, I'm tying myself to the pursuit of that person's wholeness in every way. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Doesn't that sound like it would be better than just tying yourself to a person physically? If I make a woman, even my own wife merely a means of sexual gratification without an absolute commitment to her entire person. In effect, Paul says, I am defrauding her. See, I'm demonstrating in one sense, in a physical sense, that I have a commitment to her. That's, that's the context in which sex is designed to be enjoyed, the context of commitment. But that's a fraud if I'm not actually committed to her entire well-being. There's still a way out. There's the appearance of commitment, There's an appearance of oneness from the perspective of physical intimacy, but it is an absolute lie. It's a fraud. And this fraudulent appearance of commitment, Paul says very plainly, is a transgression against my neighbor. See, even sexual morality is guided by my pursuit of wholeness on behalf of my neighbor who just happens to be my wife in this case. But it's not just applied to sexual morality. Paul applies it to basically all of morality. He's writing in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verses 25 through 32 of Ephesians chapter 4. 
Listen to how Paul frames this argument. He's, he is talking about moral issues, but he frames it in a very specific way. Verse 25, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So he says, with respect to lying and honesty, yeah, be a moral person, but be a moral person because that's what's good for your neighbor. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. Verse 26, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. And he doesn't go into detail here, but Jesus has already told us, when I'm pursuing shalom, when I'm obeying his intent for the law of Moses, I don't just avoid things like murder, but I actually avoid anger so that I can pursue reconciliation. That's what's best for my neighbor. Verse 28, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. And so with respect to my morality and material possessions, I don't steal, and I actually accumulate things to share in consideration of my neighbor who might be in need. 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And so with respect to my speech and the morality and the purity of my speech, I pursue that not because, you know, I want to I wanna be able to brag that I've never cursed or whatever, but I pursue that because that's, what's, that's the way I lift up my neighbor. That's what's best for my neighbor. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And the idea is, if you're going to pursue right attitudes, don't pursue them for the sake of pursuing them, but pursue pursue them because that's what's right for one another. That's what's right for your neighbor. Morality's focus is ultimately God, but as it focuses on God, it's very clear that it also focuses on those who bear the image of God. It's not just about a set of rules to follow for their own sake. What we learn here is that even what we consider to be the most basic moral obligations, sexual purity, not murdering, not stealing, not being bitter, not gossiping, not slandering, even those things flow from a simple desi- not from a simple desire, rather, to be good people, not in a desire to try to earn some type of favor with God, but instead what we understand is that even our morality flows from the primary initiatives of the kingdom of God, which is to love him by pursuing the wholeness of those who have been created in his image. Morality is not an end in and of itself, and it is not the essence of what repentance is all about. If I've understood repentance correctly, morality is my choice to do what's best for my neighbor because I am absolutely on board with what Jesus is doing for my neighbor because I want to reign with him. Think about that for a moment. For me, this is a totally different way to understand repentance than I've thought about it for much of my life. That's really honestly why I made it the conversation of, uh, or the object of our conversation for these past two weeks. For me, this is a new and I think much more complete understanding of what repentance is. Jesus and John both make it clear that repentance can't be properly understood without understanding the kingdom of God. Repentance can't be properly understood without understanding the purpose of the reign of the Messiah because more than anything else, repentance prepares me for participation in the reign of the Messiah. When I've really turned my attention to him, I'll start pursuing the things that he pursues and that will inevitably draw my attention to to pursuing the restoration and the wholeness of my neighbor. When my attention is really on my king, my attention will also inevitably be turned my neighbor who's made in my king's image. Everywhere, it seems, God is calling us through the scriptures to rule as he rules, 
to participate in his kingdom, to bring about wholeness. We see it in Genesis chapter 1, where where we're given dominion to rule as he rules. We see it in Exodus chapter 19, where God calls us into a royal priesthood to draw the nations to him. We see it in Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 58, where Isaiah first describes the reign of the Messiah as one who will bring about wholeness, but then he invites and commands the people of God into the pursuit of that wholeness by the giving of themselves to the poor and pursuing justice and so forth. And then we see it continue under the new covenant where Peter tells us that under the new covenant we're invited into that same royal priesthood that's referred to in Exodus 19. And where Paul tells us, I believe it's in the early chapters of the, uh, the book of Colossians, where Paul tells us that we've been transferred into the kingdom of his son, We see it when Jesus tells us in Luke 22 at the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper rather, that he is bestowing upon his disciples a kingdom. Friends, we're a kingdom people. We are a people who are invited to reign as our Lord reigns. And we do that, and I know that I've said it a lot, but it's because I think it's important. We do that by pursuing the restoration and wholeness of our neighbor. And the scriptures tell us very plainly that it all begins with our attention. It all begins with our repentance. And so I'll ask you again, are you distracted or have you really turned your attention to the king? The proof that we've actually given God our attention, John reminds us, is really in how we treat our neighbor. How are you responding to those who have needs? How are you responding to those who are hurting? How are you responding to those who are mourning? How are you responding and uh, and living among those who are spiritually confused? Are you engaged for their wholeness? Or are you indifferent? We've already read it, but the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, as he's offering pastoral instruction to his protege, Timothy, he says this, Keep your attention on Jesus Christ. Keep your attention on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead and descended from David. This is my gospel. Now, Paul doesn't use the word repentance, but his message is very closely connected to what John and Jesus have said. Paul says, in its essence, the gospel is about devoting your attention to the King of Kings. My participation in the kingdom of God begins when I rid myself of distraction to focus my attention on Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus is calling us to. That's what the message of repentance is all about. It's about repentance. And as we said last week, that's what we're called to at this table as well. At the table, Jesus is calling you to pay attention to him. He's saying, Look, my pursuit is the pursuit of wholeness. When I came to show you what I was like, I didn't stop by just being moral. I wasn't just sexually pure. I wasn't just pure in my speech. I didn't just avoid drunkenness and outbursts of rage. No, when I came, I actually laid down my life for the good of others. I lived on mission. I I gave myself to extend restoration to all the world. And here at this table, as you you participate in this very small meal, I am inviting you to do the same. 
Jesus is saying, for a moment, turn your attention to me and let's conquer the nations with the extension of my restoration and wholeness. Let, let's spread my reign. Get on board because that's what I'm doing.